Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. This is part of our Real Estate Forum. I'm your host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. I'd like to first thank our sponsors, First National, uh, for powering the podcast. Uh, we are recording live today at the Global Property Market Forum. Our guest, I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Peter Cuthbert, who's the president and head of global real estate at Fiera Real Estate. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks. Glad so, to be here. So now you're promoted president of two years ago, correct me if I'm wrong. But before that, like, how did you kind of get into Fiera? Maybe where did you start in the industry and then end up with Fiera? 30, you want the full 35 yeah, go, years? But in a condensed time <laughs> the frame. Coles, Coles yeah, Notes Coles version. Notes, yeah, please. It's good. Yeah, and you got me on a good day. I'm jet lagged and, and lacking so sleep. So fluid in your, in your thought process. Fluid, yeah. Okay. No, I, it's, uh, I had, took a degree uh, or got my degree from Ryerson in uh, applied geography of all things, which is really a, a combination of planning and economic geography focused on uh, site selection, uh, retail, industrial location. Thought I would, um, I, when I went into geography, I thought I'd never wear a suit and work in the wilderness somewhere, you know, looking at Eskers and Drumlins and then realized that that was a bad financial plan. So as soon as I graduated, uh, got my real estate license. And shortly after that, an ad came out in the paper looking for an assistant mortgage underwriter, commercial mortgage underwriter at Confederation Life, which no longer exists, wasn't my fault. Okay. Are you sure? <laughs> I, I think it wasn't my fault. That's what I'm telling everybody. So I really, that's how I got into it. And I was immediately enrolled into the Appraisal Institute program. So I started through that, that educational process. So I really started in lending, worked my way through that process, ultimately figured I had to become an appraiser to get the designation or that's where I was heading. So I ended up uh, working in an appraisal firm, which was, used to be Royal LePage. You, you left lending. I left lending. Every, see, Adam, see, Adam, it, it is possible. It, no, it's not. It's, I, I don't believe <laughs> well, it. Well, it, it is. So one of the interesting things about my career, I had great mentors, but one of the interesting things about the career was every time I went to do something, I was doing it because I thought I could learn something new or, or understand another part of the business. And every time I did it, there was all kinds of people who said, well, you'll never be able to do this again, or you'll never be able to go back into lending again. So I heard that every time I made a move, but I did go back into lending. So I spent some time on the appraisal side and then went back into lending with uh, Transamerica Life. I did a stint at Standard for a little while there too. And that was the early 90s. And that was full-on meltdown of the real estate market and full workout mode. Yeah. So everything I did was which, trying to solve problems. Which I'm sure you learned a ton doing that as well. It probably was, it sounds odd, but it was probably a very lucky break in hindsight because I went into a company that didn't really have a deep bench on the real estate side Shortly after I arrived, a huge proportion of the book was under watch and about 30% default, and they fired the guy who hired me. So I was the only guy in Canada dealing with mortgages, and I reported to San Francisco, the pyramid. Right place, right time. Right. Luck so, has something to do with it always. Luck has, with a yeah. book, though, that's blowing up, which is yeah. high-stress environment, though. It's, uh, well, it's yeah. just, you just had to figure it out, right? But there's nothing better in your career than being thrown into the fire and then just trying to figure it out. And I was fortunate because I was able to hire a consultant to help me with the workout process. And, uh, you know, he helped guide me and, and work through this fairly extensive workout that uh, lasted most of the 90s, actually. I mean, I moved on, but I was still being called back for uh, expert witness testimony and lawsuits. And it was, it was sure, a mess. Sure. I mean, nothing like GFC. It was way worse. So, so great learning uh, ground. And I went from there out on my own. So I was doing mortgage brokerage, workouts, consulting lasted for a little while and then RealCan came along and they were looking for somebody who had a, an asset focus 
to join their acquisitions team. So I joined with Chris Lawrence at, at RealCan and spent some time there. So that's moving to the dark side then, from lending to I've, the equity side. Yeah, so I moved out of lending into appraisal, back into lending or workouts. And then uh, I moved on to the equity side and acquisitions, actually. So I was really running the due diligence program at, at RealCan. So that evolved. That took... Uh, uh, about two years, and then I moved on to RealNet Canada, uh, became good friends with George Karras. He was looking for someone to go out west and set up his program out west, and uh, I volunteered and went out. I said, George, this is a great product here at RealCam. We're using it, but it's just Toronto. You know, if we had Calgary and Vancouver and other markets, that'd be really valuable for me to understand those markets through this system. He said, well, you want to go do it? So I did. So I went out and set it up in Calgary and Vancouver for him. And uh, that went well. We got it set up. And then it was time to uh, do something different again. So you're keeping track. I think that's nine different. There's a lot, a lot of moving. <laughs> but I'm not going to get through the whole sorted affair. I ultimately ended up in the fund management business. But along the way, I had a couple of mentors that uh, I uh, spent time with. And the advice they gave me was never chase title, chase opportunity to learn. So if you really want to rise through the business, and as Rolly Harper said to me once, at one point, you get old and everybody thinks you're stupid and don't know what you're doing. So you need to understand the whole business so you can do it for yourself. He was being funny. But the idea is that you don't get siloed into one channel and you have a complete understanding of the business, which allows you to move into more of a leadership role and, and perhaps run things, which that's where I am at this point in time. So it was uh, sage advice and I still follow it to this day. Right, so And the title followed, which is the ultimate, uh, you know, testament to all the groundwork you laid for it. So it's... Yeah, that's it. Just don't chase title, chase opportunity to learn, understand the business fully. And the mindset was, if you do that, you're in much better position to be both empathetic to someone that you're working with. So I've been there before. I understand what you're up against. And also to call BS if they're, you know, sandbagging it and they're, you know, you say, no, no, I've done that before. And I know you, what angle you're taking. Yeah, I've taken so, that angle before. But it, it does make you, you're in a stronger position to give direction, lead, collaborate, et cetera. So that was an important part. So that's ultimately my path was sort of multidisciplinary, touched on a finance, asset management, leasing, ultimately ended up in fund management in uh, the early 2000s, helped build a Standard Life's Canadian fund management platform under the direction of the UK Standard Life, which is now Standard Life, Aberdeen Standard Life, and uh, did that until 2012, built a pretty big fund there. And the opportunity then came up with Fiera. Uh, Stuart Legere was, uh, had cut a deal with Jean-Guy Desjardins at Fiera Capital to uh, do a partnership where they would become the alternative investment platform for Fiera Capital. At that time, they were talking about an open-ended fund. And at that time, there was only a handful of people in the business who'd run these open funds, which is a little bit different than it's not just a real estate fund. You're managing cash positions and redemptions and all sorts of other elements. So um, I just approached Stuart and, and said, uh, I know something about this and I'd like to have an opportunity to be part of it. So equity in, write a real check, get in and uh, partnered with Stuart and Rob Roy. We ultimately, we bought Roycom and that was the foundation of uh, Fiera Properties at the time, now Fiera Real Estate in 2012. And since that time, we've grown our asset base to, in Canada, 4.4 billion. And we've now acquired a platform in the UK, Palmer Capital, which will become Fiera Real Estate UK. And um, they're another, in Canadian dollars, a billion and a half. So we're now close to $6 billion under management, expect to be there by the end of the year, and growing our global presence. How did you start off when you kind of took on this new adventure? 
may you have some name recognition, but raising that fund, I'm more interested because you were in the lending side and the appraisal side and then back to lending and then on to the, sort of the equity side of RioCan. At what point did you kind of turn around rather than facing the equity investment, but turn into more of like a fundraising? Because that is, it sounds like a part of the a big component of where you were with the with standard life and now where you are with Fiera. How did you maybe pick up that skill set or what was the attraction to it? Yeah, I think the toolkit I gained by being part of the bricks and mortar side of it and understanding fully the business put me in a strong position to talk to the capital. And so in starting really in 2004, started to work to bring money into the Standard Life Investments platform, their open-ended core fund. And I just think because I could speak about the mechanics of what was a relatively new investment business, I mean, the fund business in Canada really didn't start to emerge until the early 2000s. We'd had the run with the REITs before that, but it was relatively new and we were quite far behind the UK and Europe in terms of practice. So I was just lucky to be there. Understanding the business. Yeah, understood the business, could talk to the capital, but I also learned from the UK operations really how to run a fund and deal with some of the non-obvious elements of uh, that business. From a more mature perspective as well. Yeah, understanding things like, uh, you know, this open-ended core fund that we've developed and we're delivering as as an investment strategy fits within a much broader context. So when you say that you're going to deliver an open-ended fund, your promise is some element of liquidity. That's the promise you're making. If you don't fulfill that promise on a turn, like say the GFC, right, if you shut it down, it's like not paying out on your insurance policy. And one of the things that I think the industry didn't completely understand in the early days is they're asking for their money back, not because they're afraid of real estate, but because they're actually rebalancing their portfolios, right? Which was in real estate, the idea of portfolio construction and and investment science really didn't exist. I mean, we had a bunch of guys really just going, hey, that's a good asset. I'll buy that. It looks good. I can make money at it. And paying a premium because of the illiquidity. Yeah, potentially paying or, or, a premium. Or earning, yeah. a, earning a premium. Yeah, and the, so the idea is uh, what we did in the fund business was give pension plans and uh, charitable foundations and endowments and high net worth individuals an opportunity to participate in a diversified way directly in real estate but with some level of liquidity. So if they needed to rebalance or, you know, if we have a big investor base, one of them needed to come out, there was no issue with that. You could get your money back out. So you end up with a quarterly NAV external valuation system. And and that's how the business works in terms of the open-ended. We also right. run a, a lot of closed-ended funds and they tend to be opportunistic and focused on real estate development. And maybe just for our listeners that are not familiar, maybe just describe some of the different characteristics between open-ended and closed-ended. Clearly getting your money out, but if it's closed, does that mean like you're in for five years or whatever the duration yeah. is? Yeah, so the business has evolved. You know, in the early days, there used to be closed-ended funds that were really, I would say, income or core investment strategies and, and say, hey, look, uh, we want uh, $500 million from you guys we're going to go out and buy a bunch of things, hold on to it for five to seven years, sell it at a profit, and you get your money back. So that is a closed-ended fund. And if you want your money out, you can't, effectively. You can't. You're in. I mean, you could maybe engineer a trade between somebody well, else, or like, right, you sell can't, it you or can't just get out clean. Well, it could be catastrophic for an opportunistic uh, fund, given that you could be partly through a, a workout, partly through a turnaround. Yeah. It could be a disaster. Yeah. So ultimately, the, what's happened is the whole business has evolved so that the, the core strategies now tend to be open-ended and provide some level of liquidity to the investors and their income focused and they're suited to that open structure. The closed-ended structure is now more synonymous with that value creation strategy. So right. these are usually development funds, value-add funds. You know, give me your money today and five to seven years from now, we'll complete our projects. You'll get out with your 13 to 15% net return. 
So on the closed funds, there's execution risk by the operator, whoever the manager is. On the open-ended, you've got more of a, like a, I guess, a liquidity risk in the sense that there might be a, you know, a withdrawal of funds at any given point in time. And how do you manage that risk as the fund manager? Yeah, it's interesting. So we worked through the GFC in 08, 09. What is, sorry, what is GFC? Just, sorry, Global Financial yeah, okay, Crisis. Thanks. Just yeah, make sure. I, no, don't don't yeah. apologize. So we had an open-ended fund at that time. We also had good research uh, models, which is something we also picked up from the European UK markets. So we had those in place in Canada. We started to accumulate cash and prepare for a liquidity event. We actually thought in early 08, we were accumulating it because we were going to buy things that were on sale. Ultimately, what we learned through that process was people wanted to rebalance And so we had the capital available to meet the liquidity promise. So everybody that wanted to rebalance, nobody flattened. So we had disciplined sort of pension fund investors. Nobody flattened their position, but they were able to rebalance into a different curve, into an equity curve or wherever they chose to move that money. So everybody got their money quite quickly, uh, which really defined us as an operator. And when I say us, Blair McCready has been my right-hand person in in a number of uh, cases in the past. He's with me now. And that very act was really important for building our business from that point forward. And at that time, for every $2 that came out of the fund or that we lost on the value side, we had another dollar flowing in. So you had a contra investor flow, which is really interesting as well. Because we didn't exercise our gates, most of these open-ended funds have gates. It says if a certain amount of units are being redeemed, we get to you know, manage it out or shut it down. Uh, we didn't need to exercise those, didn't sell any assets. Three quarters post global financial crisis, most of our investors came back in and re-upped and we got a whole bunch of new investors Mm. because some groups shut it down. And they shut it down, I think thinking that the right thing to do was not sell the real estate, which was probably asset-focused the right thing to do. But from a fund management, open-ended pool fund practice, that's not the right thing to do. You've made a liquidity promise. They want to rebalance. too could be a problem. (laughs) Right. But ultimately, you managed through it because that money is disciplined and, and sticky. It was mostly pension money. So we didn't have a lot of what I would call retail or high net worth money that can be sometimes fickle. And they're skittish, perhaps. Well, they respond to headlines. Right. So all the while, building trust, building reputation. Absolutely. All the way through. I mean, your trust with your relationship with your investors is absolutely vital and the consultancy channels that work with them. And you just need to do what you say you're going to do. And we were able to build that at Fiera Real Estate. We were able to build that core business. And we did what we said we would do. And we went out and originally started presenting to the capital. We said, this is what we are going to do. And this is what it should look like. And fortunately for us, a year later, we were to say, well, we did what we said we would do. So it's a very powerful message, right? Don't talk about it. Just do it. You didn't see Fiera Properties or Fiera Real Estate promoting heavily because it's just not something I believed in. The same thing when, when I was working with Georgia RealNet, we went out and built it first. And when you build it and execute other people start to tell your story and, and send your message out there. You, if you're just sort of idly promoting and chatting and saying all these great things and you don't come through, you're, you're toast. You won't, they'll see through it. Well, I'm sure in real estate, we've all run into people that are great promoters, but the execution falls flat and that business plan tends to unravel in uh, you know, not too long. And sometimes they're a little short-sighted. So the money in the front end is really intriguing and, and enticing. And uh, sometimes a short decision might bring in some fees and some revenue and some capital but won't sustain the yeah. business. Newsflash, real estate's a long game. It's a long game. Continues to be a long game. Yeah. So outside of the UK, are you still in growth mode in Canada? Yeah, we're, we're now growing th- more through our opportunistic funds. More capital coming into that. We have a small cap industrial fund, which was IAM's small industrial fund. Uh, we're now differentiating that product. So it's specialized just in smaller industrial. 
higher yielding, smaller assets, lots of tenants, huge diversification, but ultimately you get a bit better yield, right? You're being paid for the notional risk in that strategy. And it's going very well for us as a complementary vehicle to the core. And then we have three different development funds that are underway and we're raising for our fourth. And Is that new, the development angle? Well, inside Fiera Capital, there was a group called Santria that got rolled in that did private debt. And they also had this uh, construction lending and sort of real estate value arm. So we've rolled that into our side of the business. So we picked up two funds that way and we launched our own opportunity fund uh, within the last uh, three years. And that's Canada only? So those are Canada only, but we've got a very similar strategy now operating in London because we acquired a group called Palmer Capital value DNA, but running income and value add and development strategies or opportunistic strategies. So our mindset in terms of building our business globally is we will be locally present in these markets, working with local capital into local assets. And at scale, what we end up offering is a global proposition to investors. So if I'm from Canada and I like Fiera Real Estate for what they do and how they manage risk and and have innovated their investment practice, I can look them in the eye and say, I've got if you like uh, Blair McCready as your core fund manager in Canada, I've got Rupert Sheldon in the UK who thinks, behaves, acts, and operates just like Blair with the same sort of risk models. And you know, our investors care about two things. One is protect the capital, right? And keep it going. So that's all performance and innovating in that risk management space. And that's what we focus on all the time. How do you manage? I mean, you've got, I've lost track. Maybe let's start there. Can you go through the different investment vehicles that you've got kind of under the umbrella? And then my follow-up question you can lead into is, how do you manage cannibalizing one with the other? If someone says they've got investment in core and now you've got this new, you know, development product. Okay, well, I'll take all my money out of that and put it into this. Like, how do you balance that? Yeah, so our investors, uh, first of all, they're quite sophisticated. So one of the questions they always ask is, is there any conflict between your strategies and are you, as to your words, cannibalizing another strategy? We've been very careful to differentiate those. So... Our open-ended core fund is a balanced uh, fund across the country, all markets, all sectors. This uh, small cap industrial is really focused sector-specific, taking a different type of risk, still balanced across the country, but just small industrial. Our development funds are building brand new. So there's no conflict there. They're building brand new things, and we run them in series. So Is that a build-to-hold, or is that more of a merchant development? No, no all of our development funds are build-to-sell, right? They're development-focused. We have some build-to-hold in the core fund, but it's competing at a different place in the risk spectrum. So there's not a direct competition between those. So you asked, what do we have in Canada? We have uh, three active closed-ended development funds uh, in different parts of the cycle, raising for a fourth, and we do those in series. We have our open-ended core fund, which is $3 billion and moving ahead by you know half a billion or more a year, the small-cap industrial fund, and then we have a small real estate debt fund, which is, I'll call it core plus lending, okay, just above the prime space. And our belief is that to properly manage the money and allow our investor base who've just gotten into this space in the last 10, 15 years, we wanted to allow them to diversify within the real estate sector. So we have a broad range of strategies that operate between what I would call the lower yielding core safe zone to the most opportunistic strategy you can, and we can talk to them now about investment solutions. So rather than them coming in and saying, I say to them, I got this product I want you to buy. First question we ask them is, you have $100 million to invest. What is it you're trying to accomplish? So where's the money coming from? Is it coming out of fixed income? Is it coming out of the equity side? 
And what is it exactly you want that to do within your portfolio? How does it fit in? Okay, right. Well, we can give you a mix of core and value and opportunity. And debt now. And yeah. try and, and debt. Yeah, equity and debt. And we can customize the exposure. On the real estate side, it makes us very broadly relevant to the market. So we see a lot of pipeline. So we see tons of opportunity and that's important to our investor base too. So when you're right across the strategies and including debt, we like debt because it's a, a quick turn. So those are mortgages that are continuously maturing. And every time they mature, you get into another cycle of due diligence and you get new data. It's all up to date. You get appraisals with good comps in it. It feeds the market intelligence for us. So we've become better investors through that process. You mentioned uh, before we start recording that you're fresh of a flight from the UK. So to the, to the Palmer Capital Group that you're dealing with there, are we caught up as a country to the UK in terms of fund management? Or are you still learning things from uh, how they do things over there? Yeah, I think we are. As Fiora Real Estate, definitely, because that's where we learned from and, and we've advanced our business. So generally, we're, I think we're doing things as well. If we sit in front of some big pension plans, we sat in front of Shell Canada, did 19 hours of due diligence over two days. So full on, pull back the curtains and look at everything that we do. And we did very well in that process. So I think we've caught up. I still don't think we are bringing in what I would call the investment science uh, practices that exist in the more traditional asset classes into real estate. We still got more work to do. So our ability to understand exactly where the yield is coming from. So that's an attribution analysis. So am I properly weighted in the market? And do I have the data set where I can make bets? So you could look at an index and it's heavily weighted to office. We're actually in the situation right now. We've chosen to wait to industrial, which made that choice about two and a half years ago. And we're in our index, we're overweighted notionally to the index, but it's paying off because everybody knows what's happening in the logistics world and the, and the supply chain side with retail. So it's paid off very well. But I think we still got a ways to go as an industry to advance our practice in that area. It's coming and it's coming fairly fast. Technology's obviously having a big, uh, big role impact, to play in this. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, if you go back, uh, my, my father was active in the 70s buying real estate. and He talks about back then the investment strategy was you know, buy retail on the sunny side of the street. You know, that was their entire, you know, investment thesis. And, uh, you know, and you look at what we're doing now, it's, it's quite different on all levels. Well, he's not wrong though. So we have a massively imperfect market and it's continuing to be imperfect. And in that imperfection is the opportunity. So if you go into the traditionals uh, where everything is publicly listed and you can go on to CDAR and get all of the financials, I mean, that's almost a perfect market, which is why it's getting disrupted, right? It's getting harder and harder to make money as an advisor in that space. That's why all the BCOM guys are coming out of school now. They're going, hey, we should look at real estate or infra or agriculture because that sort of traditional investment banker role is starting to change dramatically, right? And it's not exactly, and, and we were the, you know, we were the forgotten sons of the investment practice. Real estate was not the place anybody went. It is now. It's, it was an alternative to the alternative assets. It really right? was. And then some of the other ones that we have. But we're in the shelter business. It ultimately is a very long business. We put the roof over the head of the economy, which is why it works so well in a portfolio. But he's not wrong. It still counts. Your location still counts. That is the fundamental building block of your portfolio. But we're now looking at broader elements in terms of how we mix that. So, you know, the thing that will always underpin you and sustain you is strong locational attributes in all your assets because the land and what it's proximate to never changes. If you think about it, if you, once you build next to a, a major airport, how many times do they build new airports? Very rarely. So that piece of dirt will always have that value proposition. 
if technology and supply chain evolve that, you know, a big box retail is no longer functional, that's okay. You're still, you know, if you're Best Buy, you're still within two, three kilometers of the end user of any sort of good. So as economics shift around, you can reimagine what's on that site and rebuild it. So the improvements are malleable. The land is fixed, but the land is what underpins your value. So you've got to get the location right, which is the sunny side of the street, the going home corner. <laughs> so we've enhanced the theory rather than just replacing it. In a, we're just getting, I think we're just getting a little smarter about how More we do it. More sophisticated, that's all. Well, I, yeah, I don't even know if it's sophisticated. I think it's what it is, is that the money that we're representing into this space needs to understand it and needs it to work within a much broader context. So we've had to come along and understand their needs and the triggers that they have in their practice and respond to those and create an opportunity for them to participate. And that's what we're doing in the fund business. You know, we haven't talked about sort of guiding principles, but, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about sort of environmental, social governance uh, and investment strategies. How does that play into Fiera's uh, psyche? Yeah, it's a, a really interesting part of the practice now. And it's evolving at a dramatically increased pace. And it's now becoming table stakes. So if you don't have a at least a stated policy around environmental and social governance, ESG, you may not even get an audience with some of the capital. But I think it's even bigger than that. And we're looking at this in a, not in a different way, but we're taking it on in a much more purposeful and intentful way. And it just comes to this. I think there's three generations of young people that are absolutely terrified about what's going to happen. And our media and our political champions are representing the very extreme elements of that. And it's freaking people out. You just have to look at a Greta Thunberg, whether she's a, a crusader or a scared child, she marshaled seven and a half million young people into the street. Okay, so this is real, a real serious issue. It's not a fad. It's not going away. We do need to respond to it. It also bothers me because I have children in their 20s now are trying to figure out what they're going to do, that they actually are saying things like, I'm not sure I want to have children. To me, that's a bad message. It's not a message of hope. And I look at what we do in our real estate industry, and many of us are already doing it, but we can be massively impactful on the environment by how we manage built form and engineer our space and how we draw on the, on the energy system. So we are involved in the green, uh, Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark, GRESB. Uh, we're signatory to the PRI, but we're actually taking it, and you'll see in 2020, we're actually getting right into measuring our impact on our people, what they're doing, how they're contributing. And what we want to do is change the dialogue in our culture with our business from, you know, this idea that you can't do anything to, hey, chin up. There's a lot we can do and we're doing it right now. And we're going to actually measure it and monitor it and promote it and make it part of our culture. That this mindset that we can make things better in our space. And rather than fretting what's going on that you don't control, call it our politicians who've made promises that we know nobody can keep. Let's not worry about that. Let's focus on what we can do and make a difference. So that's, we're looking at ways to do that. We all have a responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. And thankfully, there is a momentum behind this that's, you know, many other of the people in our industry are starting to embrace this in a very big way. And I think it is a trend that's going to drive forward very rapidly over the next few and years. And impacting decisions, no longer just about Huge. yield. Yeah, absolutely. They, they're important. But we're actually seeing a connection between performance and uh, taking care of those ESG factors. The snowball effect's been incredible. I mean, I remember being in forums even five years ago where the panelists were laughing at the idea that tenants would care at all about any of this. And now here we are just a couple of years later and 
every major corporation at least is paying attention to this, if not being active in the space. And formalizing policy. It's not something they're just talking about, as you said. It's something that's putting down in paper that we will do this. We will take this seriously. Well, you know why? Because younger people are insisting that it happens. And it's great because you, you always get the millennial, this, that, the other thing. Well, I think that's nonsense. I think those differences have existed between generations forever. But what's, I think it's really being driven by our younger generations who are looking for something different and are valuing it in a different way. And if you want to attract quality individuals and with a mindset that they're going to contribute, not take out, you need to do these things and make the workplace about more than just the day-to-day job. And this is one way you can do it. This is a heavy topic. But uh, I've got a lighter ending to end up here on. Obviously, Peter's got a panel to get to. He's speaking today at the Global Property Markets Forum. George Prezbeluski, who runs these forums that so many of us attend, came and dropped off a note mid-recording. He asked me to ask you about golf, and I don't know why, but uh, he thought it'd be important for you to deliver a message about golf. Well, it's because George is one of my favorite types of uh, members at the golf club that I belong to, the Toronto Hunt, and he belongs there as well. He says he comes out to golf. I don't see him there a lot, so I put him in the sponsorship category. So he, his willingness to pay and only play a few rounds actually keeps my cost of golf down. And, um, and maybe that's what he's talking about. But yeah, we both belong to the same club, and uh, I see George there. Uh, What's your handicap? It's uh, my handicap is I is playing with George. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> good answer. I can see why you don't want to say your handicap was being recorded. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I'm not shy. Just lie. I'm sitting at a 22 right now. Yeah. It's okay. not good. Okay. Yeah, there's a bit of mythology what's, around what's golf. What's George's courses. handicap? I have no idea. I have no <laughs> we'll idea. Ask him. Yeah, I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Peter. That was wonderful. Really appreciated your insights. Um, that was a great interview. Thank you. We want to thank uh, First National for sponsoring the podcast. We want to thank uh, the forum for hosting us here today at the Global Property Markets Forum. And uh, again, Peter, big thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.